What's up? Welcome to the Confluence VC podcast. This podcast is meant to give you a personal glimpse into the next era of investors and operators. This week we had on Oz at Revolution Growth. Revolution is a multi-strategy fund based in DC that invests in underrepresented geographies across the US. Within his role, Oz helps source and evaluate high growth companies that align with the mission of the fund. In this talk, we discuss investing outside of the traditional innovation hubs, the expansion of firms offering full stack investment strategies, growth stage enterprise themes, and the short and long-term outlook for SPACs. Everybody, welcome to the Confluence VC podcast. Today we have a special guest. He's actually one of my homie homies. Like I met him through my homies from Chicago. That's the homie Osman Nuri. Yes, I just said homie 10 times. <laughs> Works at Revolution on the, on the growth side of things. And he's just a real blessing. Funny story, without Oz and me brainstorming, there's a good chance that I would not have helped co-found Confluence with Clay. Me and Oz put together a really big list of topics to keep it real in D.C., called FYI.V. Next week, Clay hit me talking about his idea for this, this database, which then turned into us saying, why don't we just put all of this energy together and has resulted in confidence. So, Ash, thank you for being a silent founder of uh, Confluence. <laughs> yeah, I'm still, y'all never really showed me the equity. I, I don't know if I got actual ownership in it. So, we got some problems. We had some funny stuff on there. How about this, bro? How about in, in two minutes or less, can you talk through your path to where you are today? I'm going to try to. It's a lot more detailed than that, but I'll try to give you two. So I like to start straight from the beginning. My whole family's from overseas, from Somalia. They fled to war to come to this country. Your classic, like, American dream story. And I was actually born in Arizona. Only person born in, in the U.S. in my family, not like an immigrant hub or anything. Pretty bizarre to live out there. I lived there till I was eight, and then my brothers and my mom wanted to get out of the area to really try to find some opportunity. And it ties into this whole thing around technology. My mom was trying to really build a career for herself and ended up trying to become a IT DBA type programmer thing. And the best place to do that was in Northern Virginia with, with the government as far as just getting a job. So I grew up with that in, in the front of my mind, someone pulling themselves up using technology to find a career and kind of future-proof themselves. I ended up getting really focused in the books. I liked basketball a lot, was never that good. So I realized I had to have a, a different type of grind and didn't want to be that, that immigrant kid that was a doctor or a lawyer. So I just chose business kind of. I was, my story has always been just wandering and figuring things out. I didn't have a familiarity with anything and just taught, taught myself along the way. So I went to UVA uh, and on a full scholarship, studied business and then also studied African-American studies. So balancing two sides of my personality that are really important to me. Every, like you said earlier, Clay, everyone is going into banking and consulting. And I settled on banking, not because I thought it was the best thing in, in the world, but I thought it was a good platform to learn a lot about a lot of things. I did M&A at Bank of America, generalist M&A, did a lot of tech deals was still not focused on jumping straight into private equity or any of the traditional paths people were doing then. But once I slowed things down, I started to learn that I did have just a natural curiosity. I always, like, I've never really identified, but as I learned the ecosystem, I was like, I think venture and early stage and late stage venture, whatever you want to call it, 
makes a lot of sense. You're working with technology and kind of trying to think about where the future is going. You have a lot more ownership. You touch a lot more of the founder and company side of things in the way that's different from financial engineering. It's just a lot more rewarding and for a lot of non-financial reasons, but I also think it's the biggest index on the future if you do want to participate in like the wealth creation and generation too. So I ended up really getting into the BC recruiting side of things, learned how uh, insulated those networks were. So I decided I was going to meet everybody I could in, in the New York area, had a whole bunch of people take a chance on me and connect me with a bunch of other folks and was interviewing pretty far along with a few places in New York, but ended up choosing to go to Revolution despite those processes, just because I liked a few things they're doing in terms of a thesis that was forward-looking on where the industry may be going, had a really exciting team full of a lot of industry vets that I could work closely with, and now it's like a non-linear opportunity for me. And I just like the culture and the people in general, and I thought it was a growing platform I could really have an impact on versus just being an associate somewhere else. So that kind of took me to today. For sure. Yo, you were part of SEO, which is, what is the Sponsors for Education Opportunity or Equal, Sponsors for Equal Yeah, yeah, some Sponsors for Educational Opportunity. Yeah, man, I, I was almost part of that. Going to the interview process there was what led me to go to Morgan Stanley, even though I didn't, mm-hmm. and I know like a cool like 15 or so individuals who are people of color who have killed it because of that program. I, I could argue maybe 30, and I think yeah. it's one of the- Oh, yeah, 30, easy. I could, the the family, the network is deep. It's like MLT. It's similar to the top. Yeah, so I could, I could tell you more about that, especially if you're going down the Wall Street, banking, any kind of classic professional career path. If you're diverse, that's like a natural spot. A lot of people start to network and kind of find their entry path. So basically what SEO does is, you know, create equal opportunity both in education and career opportunities for people of color or underrepresented groups. So they have a scholar program where they're helping kids financially and also just with the the preparation for trying to get into a good college in a lot of these under-resourced communities. And then on the career side, which is what I did, they're helping people out of colleges try to break into Wall Street or consulting or big law out of their undergrad or graduate school programs. And so it's like one of these unique spots you'll find where there's just such a dense amount of diverse talent there that you just don't see elsewhere. And as you keep growing through your career, you constantly keep running back into them and seeing just how strong that network is. And it's just, I don't know, I feel like 20 years from now when I look back, I'm still going to have a lot of friends from it and we're going to be running things in all these different industries. So that's been super rewarding. I've always tried, even when I was saying earlier, with studying commerce and African-American studies, like I've always tried to keep both sides of me. Like I want to be a great professional and be an entrepreneur and create a lot of value for myself, but I also want to do it my way and with bring along my people along the way. So SEOs have always had a pay it forward type culture. And I'm always just trying to keep that in the front of my mind. 100%, man. Like I, I don't personally know any other organization that's doing mm-hmm. it at this level with this scale mm-hmm. and giving people the kind of influence they have across the broader economy. So congrats mm-hmm. for that. No, thank you, thank you. I also got to shout out Henry Kravitz, one of the folks who's a major alumni and donor to my school for being a, a big founder of that. I would have never known about it if it weren't for him. Actually, how I met uh, Dion was through SEO. I met a couple of Chicago people through that. 
Dion is one of my best friends. We'll get him on here one one day. He's um, <laughs> early stage investment uh, stuff out in Chicago for one of the wealthy, one of the wealthiest families there. Yo, speaking of wealthy people, Steve Case. We're huge fans of Steve Case. And I've always been a fan of innovative venture models and his concept of investing in everything non-Silicon Valley was really interesting. And it seems as if like he foresaw this day, maybe longer term, he didn't see COVID being like a bigger catalyst for things mm-hmm. happening. But, um, but these has played out well. Your exit path is incredible. And the rest of the world is following suit. You want to talk a little bit about that strategy and, and how you all played it out? Yeah, sure. And I could start it just with Steve himself. The whole thing about seeing around the corner with the current environment is normal from his kind of his development. Like his big thing, if you don't know already, is starting America Online back in the 80s and taking it public in 1992. So he kind of democratized the internet. Before that, it was what blockchain or Bitcoin is, is in the stages of now where like people know it, but people don't really use it and doesn't really have a commercial use case. So he did that for the internet and brought people online with America Online, built that to a $150 billion company, did the biggest M&A deal in history where they merged with Time Warner. As a part of that deal, he left the company and was looking for his next act. And that's what Revolution was. It started as a family office for his own personal investments. And he incubated a couple of things that while he's there and worked with some of his partners from AOL to manage those activities. And then I want to say, so that was like 2005. And I want to say in 2012 is when we raised our first true institutional fund. And that was actually the growth fund as the first, first act for a revolution. And I can talk about how the whole firm itself fits in together. So there, we have three funds today and a multi-stage uh, strategy. We have a seed fund, a venture fund, and a growth fund, which I'm on. And I'll just go in, in order of scale. So the rise of the rest seed fund is a premier geographic focused one. So when you talk about investing outside of Silicon Valley, that the Rotor Fund is what we call it, does that in the most serious way. They don't even invest in New York or Boston. They see those markets get three quarters of all venture capital and their thesis is heavily on the, there's a distribution of talent and opportunity, but there isn't a distribution of opportunity or capital. And that's a really interesting strategy. They're trying to sort of, catalyze all these different hubs and all these different geographic ecosystems to give people that chance and that capital. And on top of that, in the next wave, this third wave of companies that we think where, where industry matters and domain expertise matters, they'll be, you know, perfectly suited to partner in those regions. So if you're in sort of like Ohio and you see all these insurance companies coming out of Ohio, that ability to work alongside the ecosystem with the big partners that are already incumbents with the people that have been living and breathing it. And if you're thinking about industrials or healthcare, fintech, ag tech, same idea there. And so that fund has two $250 million funds, but 300 million total. And there's not one institutional LP. It's all high net worths just so they can continue to enhance that network to grow those ecosystems. So they got on the tech side, Jeff Bezos, Eric Schmidt, you name it, the Walton family that are investors and very active in their geographies. There's Ray Dalio and other hedge fund guys in there. There are John Doerr, Jim Breyer also participating. Like, so it's a pretty eclectic LP group so that they can continue to play on that whole geographic strategy and get you find the right people. They do a bunch of deals. They don't, they're more passive. They're finding 
coastal VCs to do these deals with. So that's what they do. I was going a little bit deep on that. The venture fund, again, outside of Silicon Valley, can do deals in like New York and Boston, but again, just primarily not Silicon Valley. And so think mostly Series A, care about ownership, classic Series A fund. And then that finally, on the, and they manage about 400 billion. And then the growth fund is where I sit. First thing, we have about two thirds of the AUM. We have two five, call it $500 million funds where we're looking for consumer and enterprise uh, tech enabled business models that are disrupting large legacy markets. It's a lot more of an old school approach in, ter- in terms of how we're viewing the growth sector. Like we only purposely manage 500 million in any given fund. We're leading all of our deals, really doing the work and structuring, always taking the board seat to actually execute on our value proposition. And that just sort of allows us to be hands-on. We're deploying our capital over four years versus two years. So we can truly be a value add, you know, board member and partner. So that, it's a really exciting strategy. And I think, I think it's positioned well for where the market's going. We primarily focus on, from a value creation perspective, on what we call the four P's. You got to pause there. I want to, you getting ahead of my questions, brother. Yeah. All right. You know, I could go all day. Once you get me going, I just keep <laughs> So now y'all see how we ended up getting to that whole list of FYIs. Y'all do a lot of stuff that adds a lot of value to the community. I know one thing that you all have been doing, which kind of maybe was feeding into what you were just getting into, is these annual playbooks. Mm-hmm. I know for 2021, you all were thinking about like ways that places like Colorado, Miami, Tennessee, Puerto Rico, I think like Minnesota and a few others mm-hmm. uh, storm the weather of the post-COVID life and, and other ways they can scale and, and really create value for themselves and their broader communities. You want to, you want to dive into that, what those playbooks are, and then also finish off with the ways that you add value just generally. Yeah, sure, sure. So the playbook sort of something that our Rise of the Rest team put together. So they typically do a bus tour and go to a lot of these different communities where they're trying to elevate the entrepreneur, entrepreneurial opportunity and access to funding. And so with this year's playbook, it was in, a lot of it was in response to COVID and what that's done to business and entrepreneurship in these areas we've been talking about this whole time. And so it was mainly centered around funding, navigation, and founder support. So funding being with these businesses that are being disrupted or they're struggling in this environment, like how do you get them access to capital? They already have trouble getting capital as is because of that whole point around most of it going to, to other areas. And so creating that playbook around, okay, based on whether it's governmental, whether it's from VCs, whether it's from some impact or charitable foundation, like where's the money? How do you access it? What are the important details you need to consider around your own business to get that money? The next point was on, on navigation. And that's more so understanding how the environment impacts your business. Oh, I get a PP loan. What does that mean? How does the next wave of legislation impact me? How do I get to access that, that information in a way where I can act quickly on it? when things are changing in real time dynamically. And then the last part was around founder support that primarily focuses on like more of the emotional and personal toll that running a business can take on you in this kind of environment. And that's more relying upon one-on-one coaching, workshops, creating support networks and access among these entrepreneurial groups. So that's the rise of the rest. It's an extension of what rise of the rest and what revolution already does in terms of what do you really need to make these places competitive with Silicon Valley? You need density of capital, of talent, and just opportunity. So that playbook is just trying to really show people ways to do that. 
and just taking it to that next level, you were saying just generally on Revolution. We have a view on a platform called Four P's. So Revolution is based in DC. One of our one of the things we embrace and have embraced for a while before people wanted to. There's that whole idea of avoiding regulation and technology. So policy is big for us. One of our co-founders is Ron Klain, who went and is now the chief of staff to Biden right now. So that's something that's in our DNA. We work hand in hand with policy experts and make that available to our portfolio. Partnerships is another, just a classic thing that these brand branded VC firms do where you typically have some well-known partners for us, that's Steve, Ted and Steve, and they're good at connecting the dots with intros at the right level at a lot of these big companies or even high growth companies and just generally finding a way to illuminate the right acquirers or the right customers or whatever it may be. Then we have Another view on positioning that is self-explanatory, or place, sorry, that's self-explanatory, like we go outside of Silicon Valley, and the last one's positioning, and that's more of like a marketing thing that you see with a lot of different multi-stage firms where they try to illuminate the company and let them rise from the pack. Makes sense. Yo, so you're on a growth team. I would love to hear your thoughts on, on some of the areas that you invest in. I know, similar to myself, you look at a lot of B2B enterprise facing companies mm -hmm. and just from seeing your Twitter and having personal conversations with you, I know just how thoughtful you are. Mm -hmm. just, just talk about any brief trends. Yeah. And so what's been really taking a lot of my brain right now is it's not even necessarily a sector, a trend relative to a, a vertical, but more venture as an asset class, like late stage venture and growth. It's this whole thing about how the competition is changing. You have the early stage funds that are creating growth funds that are going up market. You have the crossover funds that are coming down market. So the co-2s of the world and D1 capital, Lone Pine, Lone Pine capital and things like that. Because it's been super interesting for us because we got to understand how we can compete and underwrite when people are coming into the game with a completely different perspective. And I think it's really cool because like you're seeing the market get so hot for the public companies and the multiples are actually expanding for the public companies. So a lot of the crossover funds are starting to do series A, series B, series C deals just to blend down their cost and get an earlier entry point. And especially since companies, at least for a while, were staying private longer, the private market was eating up so much of that return. So for me, that's been something I've been spending a lot of time thinking about, like, how do you compete in this market? When a, when a firm will come in and price a deal at 40 times revenue, not for a Series A company or a, a C company, but for a, a Series B or a Series C company, and that's a multi-billion dollar deal already, and you're trying to underwrite tier 3 to 5X. So that's something that's been just been really interesting to me, and I'm curious as like all of the environment keeps getting hot for early stage tech companies, just how growth responds to that. Who can really like thoughtfully say that they're being disciplined when you can get priced at 2 billion having, I don't know, $10 million in revenue. Very good point. I talked to some of my partners who've been in the game, reputable firms for almost 20 years now. And they're just like, this is a, a crazy environment and while things look good today, tomorrow they might get real cloudy. Yeah, yeah. Who's determining that price? Like it's, a, it's one VC to another saying that it's worth a billion. And right now the market's gonna, carry the weight on that. Like they'll let you go public and keep validating that valuation, but how long can that keep going? There are all these different ways that the money's coming in and people are seeing that the pri 
for the first time in a while, the private markets may be cheaper than the public markets. And it's like, how do we get to this point? We have, I've heard companies where they can't raise a growth round and they're thinking about going, going public on the SPAC. And I'm like, how does that make sense? Dude, that's what I wanted to talk to you about. <laughs> Tell me your thoughts on these SPACs, man. You all just did a pretty cool SPAC. And in, in, in for some people, it makes a lot of sense. It's a lot of access. But a lot of people see this as just continuing and growing the bubble. Like, how mm -hmm. do you, and tell us a little bit about the stack you all just put together. Yeah, sure. So I, I'm, I could go on this forever. We, so we just had a company announce they're going public via SPAC Talkspace earlier this week. It's a mental health, a telehealth company, remote-based clinical therapy, text and video, going public via SPAC. We had DraftKings go public via SPAC early in 2020, which kind of, started some of the madness and it's the best performing SPAC of the year, I think. And then Revolution now has raised their own SPAC. So lots of opinions. So on the Revolution SPAC, it's a pretty simple idea. We already have every stage of private capital, seed, venture, growth, and we have a differentiated thesis. And we just have a lot of access to these big companies and big opportunities through what we do already on the private side. And we thought that there's a real, we think we have the attractive points to entrepreneurs to even back them in the public market. So it's more of just like a natural or logical extension of what we have already been doing. And just going more deeper on the SPAC in general, for a while the SPAC was seen as a really second tier, weird way to go public. It was pretty much like the JV to go in public with an IPO. It was like you raise, this, you, the reason people go public via SPAC is because they can't get through the rigor of an IPO and you have this predatory SPAC sponsor who gets really nice economics, whether it's a great company or a shitty company. And, th and they have a two-year ticker on getting a deal done. So they'll do any deal just to get it public, take their sponsor economics. And that's all that matters to them. No one cared about a really long-term, durable, valuable company in the public markets. And so that's, let's say, set that stage as like what it was and what it is now. So I think one thing we could say definitely is the SPAC as an alternative uh, to going public, IPO, direct listing, whatever, is, is credible. So the actual like mechanism itself, that what's different now is you have credible sponsors. Like these are people that have tons of experience in their sectors, have a proven track record that are raising the SPACs on one side of it. And then you have credible companies on the other side of the equ equation that are willing to go public via SPAC because of that. And the SPAC has a couple of attractive features around just some pricing certainty, a little bit more funding certainty, especially when IPOs are getting criticized so much and disclosure too, like because it's a merger, there are, there's guidance you can give that can help people like understand your business. So as a path, I think it's real. Now there's the other piece of it that anyone can raise a SPAC. I'm pretty sure you can raise a Confluence SPAC if you wanted to just because it's that easy. Like this, these things, like it's so easy to raise a spec because the sponsors have to agree on the deal. They just give you the money and a trust. And when you find a deal, they can disagree on it. And so, it's, and, and so what the problem is, is there's too many SPACs being raised and not every SPAC sponsor can find a good deal. And so I think ultimately it's gonna start to look just like the private equity markets where there's gonna be good managers and bad managers. And there's some incentives around needing to get a deal done that will drive some companies to go public that shouldn't be just because people will give them the money. So you will see a lot of companies, I think that fail, but I think the SPAC will continue to be a path for everyone, I think, permanently going forward.
When do you see that popping? Is there a horizon of when something's going to change or do you see the, these tailwinds continuing for the next? So what I would say is, or one, one kind of milestone I'm looking at is for these companies that are pretty much going public with venture level risk, like almost no revenue or pretty much just like a, still like a binary. If the tech works, it's going to be big. Like you see all these EV companies or super technical companies, but and going public seems to be the easy part. Once they start having to report on their quarterlies and their market responds to like their progress, I think that's when you're going to start to see some like rationalizing. Like a lot of them just are announcing the deals, but they haven't actually finalized, they haven't merged, and they haven't had to go through quarters with actual real public market investors where the SPAC is one thing, but going public, once you go public, you're just a regular public company just if you went public via an IPO. So I think once a lot of these companies have seasoned and you can see them actually behave in the public market, I think they're gonna, some of these are going to get slaughtered. There are a lot that went public because they could, but there are a lot that went public because it was an opportunity and they weren't actually ready. They didn't have the governance. They didn't have the business model. They didn't have the predictability. They didn't have the growth. The po- like, so for me, I think that's at the next checkpoint. Agree, man. We get a ton of interest from people trying to stack our companies and they're just like, nah, we gotta, it has to be the right time. Yeah. Yeah, it's like my company could barely raise a next round of, of financing. How is it going to raise a SPAC? Like, even ones that are doing well. You yeah, yeah, oh yeah, for sure. The ones that are doing well, they're going to be on them. But it's just, you can see there's a lack of discipline when you talk to some of these like sponsors. And that's when you can tell there's something that doesn't add up, some like, some lack of mix up on incentives. But I think overall, though, the SPAC is real. Maybe I'm just, I have had my own personal experiences around it through Revolution, but when it's done, when it's a good sponsor, when it's a good company and they choose that route for some reason, it's the same thing as going public. Yeah. Why SPAC over direct listing? This is like a subject that I need to get way more up to speed in. And I'm Mm -hmm. trying to just understand the benefits of both of those approaches. Because I totally agree. I think the traditional IPO is not dead, but dying. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to figure out the pros and cons of direct listing and and SPACing. That's a really good question, and there's tons of debate going on around it. So I'd say the one main thing, and that this is changing actively, is the the need for primary capital. Like when you're raising it, when you're going public via SPAC, you get some of that same like effective price discovery that you get from a direct listing, where you're probably not going to get underpriced. Obviously, it could still go up after that, but with a SPAC, you're actually getting financing. So the SPAC sponsor that you're merging with has a whole bunch of cash they raised that you're getting access to. Hopefully they don't, uh, there aren't any redemptions. And usually a SPAC gets raised with a pipe investment too. So you'll get say like $500 million at a guaranteed price where you know your dilution and you've decided it's a fair price versus with a directed listing. Usually the primary capital isn't tied to it. And so you're just starting to immediately float your shares. So there's like pros and cons, but even then these things are changing so much. There, I think they just there's some regulation being discussed around being able to raise primary capital with a direct listing. So then you have that optimal price discovery where it's not like you're getting a banker and they're picking the price and then they're talking to their clients and then the price shoots up for the secondary buyer. Like you get rid of some of that. It's like a true option. But I think overall, it's just great for the industry to have more different options that are appropriate. I don't think I think the IPO is in a weird spot, but I think it'll respond to the pressure that's create, being created through a SPAC and through the direct listing. And ultimately, 
it's just going to be better for you and me as investors and it's going to be better for companies i don't know if you saw actually roblox was about to go public you saw the markets going crazy and then they decided to hold up like we don't want to get the wrong price we're just going to raise at a ridiculous price they like seven x their valuation in eight months and, and so they raised like a private round and then they're going to go public with a direct listing so it's dope to see people on the spot trying to figure out what the right path is. So I think it's only a good thing for everybody. Not a good thing for the bankers probably because they can't get that cut and, and pass it to their clients, but they'll be okay. Agreed. So I love this piece. It's been one of the more <laughs> more like technical in the week conversations we need. Mm-hmm. Yeah, with that, because me, we can go on this. We do this all the time. We can go. Yeah, you can tell. I just, but, uh, I'm just here. I'd love to let this man, Clay, take us out with the quick questions and then let you ask us the questions at the end. All right, cool. So, Oz, we do these at the end. Ideally, meant these five questions be answered in two sentences or less. Joke that we like literally never hit that, mm-hmm. that threshold, but that's the goal. First question is, what is a recommendation you hear regularly that you think is bad advice? Keep your head down. I think you, you could do hard work. You could work hard and be humble, but you should always think about your optionality at all times and get to know people. Love it. Love it. In the last year, what new belief, behavior, or habit has most improved your life? It's an interesting one. I made like a, uh, a new email where I just get newsletters sent to it and I share it with people and we just add different subscriptions to it. And then it just makes it an easy way to talk about things and bubble them up and have some conversations. Yeah. Hey, 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 we'll <laughs> talk about that later. To talk about, once I get my equity in, in this, we can talk about it. <laughs> bro, I hit you so many here of VC, bro. But uh, okay, okay, next one, like, go for it. Aside from having to say no all the time, what's the worst part about venture? Probably the noise. Like everything in venture is actually long-term. Like if you're good for a while, if your company's good for a while, but people in the industry love to create a lot of noise and a lot of signals. And it's most of the time people, other people that don't know better buy into it. And I wish there's just a little bit less of that. Yeah. Deciphering signal versus noise. Yeah. Totally agree with that. All right. Next piece, best piece of advice for junior VCs or those aspiring to break into venture. Yeah. It's what I, what I was saying a little bit earlier, but just thinking really long-term about your approach to VC and not just from investing, but your career and just making frameworks for it. VC is a super hard industry to break into. A lot of times you don't control the outcome of it. So just taking a long-term perspective, like talk to people, not because there's an interview process going talk to them to make, to get close with them so that when the time comes, you're ready. And when you get in the industry, you need to still continue to, to take that perspective so you can be successful over 10 years and not over one or not over two. Totally. Totally. All right. Last one here. Who's a mentor that you'd want to give credit to? Could be more than one. Yeah. It's probably like a one A and a one B for me. There's this woman, Sarah or Sarah Z who used to work at Great Cross and now works at Global Founders Capital, who is my first person I ever talked to in VC when I was just grinding, but knew nothing. And she literally just held me down and treated my recruiting like a job. And I don't, I was like, shocked by it because I was in banking and everyone was not the best personality wise and I was like why are you so nice why are you holding me down so her and probably David Tish at Box Group who I went pretty deep with and when I was interviewing there and just connect, we connected and he's to this day still looks out for me puts shows me the right people whenever I don't know what to do I'll bounce an idea off him and it's just weird that he's so 
willing and able and humble. So I'm, I'm grateful for both of them would not be in where I am today or have a job probably if it wasn't for them. It's amazing. They're also both great contacts to have. Yeah, for sure. For sure. You got it. Yeah. Got to get them on here next. Yeah, honestly, if you want to make an intro to, to hey, yeah, as long as they talk about me, if they start, yeah, yeah, talking yeah, yeah, we'll preface it like this is <laughs> not about you; it's about odds. Um, Every time they get response, we'll be like, "But how does that relate to odds?" <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so this is the time in which you can you can ask us anything you want. Yeah, I was gonna say, for you when with building this, it's a great resource for the industry and important to just all of us junior VCs getting better, finding good deals, doing good deals, knowing what we need to know to, to future-proof everything. But how are you guys thinking about if, it, if it's successful? Like, how do you judge that in this year versus how are you judging that at, like, lo longer term? Oof. Did, did, was I the one who went out or did everybody go out? I think that was just you. I got that. He was asking, he was asking like, how we're evaluating success on this? That's a good question. I think for one, and a metric that we're continuing to monitor is the number of messages exchanged through Slack, kind of shows the levels of engagement, levels of weekly and monthly and daily active users. I think as long as that continues to trend upward, like we're doing something right, that's in relation to the total number of members that we're able to bring on, expanding the footprint to overall VC. We have a couple other projects that we have that we're hopefully going to launch sooner rather than later that we'll have more metrics to measure ourselves on. Mm -hmm. But yeah, just right now, like these past six months, we've really focused on expanding presence in the investor community. And I think as we've done that, we've become more appealing to different buckets of people. So that's, I'm hinting at where our, mm -hmm. our focus is going next. I, I think my take on that, of course, we have a unified view on that, but from my perspective, what I've been very much so focused on is just like uh, step functions of platform. So once you have this, what do we need to get to the next step? And I think just like how close we get to each of those pieces. Of speed. So for instance, once we had a certain amount of data, we knew that we could then, or within the database of resources, we knew that we can then request people to submit them to get access to it. Once we had a certain amount of data, then we knew we could build out the Slack group. Once we knew we could build out the Slack group, then we knew that we could maybe turn on some other person. And same with the, same with the, the newsletter, understanding click-through rates and, and what types of things people were clicking. Because at the end of the day, like this whole platform is only about making every person who's part of the community double down and improve upon the metrics that they deem to be success in their careers. So that might be how many investors they meet. That might be how many deals they get to see. That might be how much education they have. And we're just trying to always figure out how we can create viral loops to that. I don't want to give up too much secret sauce, but like over time, we, we, we want to have the most proprietary data and the most resources possible across the buckets of success for venture folks. That's all I, don't, I don't know, man. It sounds like to me, if you aggregate the investors, the deal flow, the resources. Just let me know once you raise the Confluence funds, because it just seems like <laughs> that, that just seems once it creates that much value for that, that many people. If I want to be an angel investor tomorrow and I want to do it via your platform, or if you guys want to raise the fund based on all the deal flow you see, just let me, I'm not looking for a job right now, but just let me know. First check in. 
<laughs> You're welcome to put in some GP carry. We're going to need some hey. growth. Hey, hey, hey. That's growth, but like, I respect your pin game, bro. I really do. You know that. Yeah, I appreciate that, man. But no, I would say I got more questions, but I feel like I know you too much that I'm already keeping track of all this. Away with more questions. We're trying to do a better job of answering questions rather than just asking them. Yeah, yeah. What's up? Let's let's get you let's get you involved in some pieces. We wanna we wanna do these co-author pieces where we uh, focus on different areas. Mm -hmm. Like your favorite growth investors or who are doing SPACs or co-author. Oh, yeah, I can go on for days, as you can tell. I just I just think and run on sentences. Cool. Yeah, we can uh, maybe like at the top of Q2 or something like that. We can, or maybe like towards the end of Q1, we can, we can get together four or five people who are the best in class. Like, I don't want nobody who's doing the other like 90% of uh, SPACs they can't get no money in. Yeah. Then, I want to get you, and uh, I'm not going to drop names yet, but the world yeah. is. And, yeah, we can. We, yeah, I'm already thinking. I'm thinking big, swinging big. Always. Do anything small. Yeah. Little plans, bro. Hey, don't keep your head down. You, you Write that down. Never keep your head down. Yeah. Uh, all right, bro. We gonna let's right. next. Let's love. Yes, sir. Uh, and being a great representation of venture growth, and uh, more importantly, just POCs in this space because you've given one of the most impressive and thoughtful presentations here that I've ever seen. Uh, thanks. That's love. I appreciate it, Tyler Clay. I'm gonna link up with y'all soon. All right. Thanks again, Oz. Huge thanks again to Oz for coming on this week, and we hope that each of you were able to pick up something valuable from this talk. We've linked Oz's LinkedIn and Twitter in the description below if any of you are looking to connect with him offline. For next steps, if you're an investor and have not already signed up to join, we encourage you to check out our website at www.confluence.vc to submit your info to become a member. If you have any feedback for us, please feel free to reach out directly either to Tyler at tyler at gpv.com or myself at clay at muckercapital.com. Hope to hear from you all soon.